This morning's message is a little different than where we've normally been the last few weeks. Uh, we've been in the Gospel of John, but this morning we're, we're taking a break just for a week. And uh, if you remember at the beginning of this year, um, I shared we were gonna have some messages regarding the marks of a healthy church. And this morning we're gonna look at a biblical understanding of missions. So when we talk about missions, what, what verses come to your mind? Is there a certain passage from God's word or a command that comes to mind? Usually when we think of missions, we, we, we gravitate to the New Testament, the end of Matthew or Mark, and we, we say the Great Commission that, that Jesus gave to the disciples is, is what we mean by missions. And a very good uh, passage, rightly so. It, it most definitely defines what uh, the need for missions and for us to be involved in missions. But how do we define that? Or how do we see that in Scripture? Have you, have you thought about that much? Uh, this, this morning is the, the, sec, or the, excuse me, the third message of eight messages that we're going to talk about marks of a healthy church. And that's borrowed from Mark Dever's book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Well, I have eight this week, so, or this year. So I guess I can get it done quicker than Mark can in nine. Not really. But We've talked about the gospel and the need for the gospel, and that's for the church's understanding the gospel. And the second one we talked about is, is the need for evangelism, that marks of a healthy church. The third one we're going to talk about is missions. I am a missions guy. I don't know if you know that about me, if many of you gotten to know me or my family very much. I'm very passionate about missions. It started when I was a sophomore in Bible college, and it came to fruition when my family and I moved from Washington to Sweden. We desired to be missionaries. And and felt God was placing us there. We, we, we were convinced at that moment that we were to be lifers in missions. We didn't see any other option. Um, but God, in his plan, had a different plan. And so we're back here. We're glad and joyfully serving the Lord here at Edgewood Bible Church. But I'm still very passionate about missions. So you're going to hear that a lot from me. Because I see it in Scripture. And I want you to see it this morning, too. But as a church, Edgewood Bible Church, we're passionate about missions also. Since its very inception, you know, as a church, we support over 45 missionaries, whether financially or prayerfully. Most of those financially, 45. Do you guys know that? Do you know that we as a church have 20% of our total budget, just under 20% of our total budget that we give as a church to missions? And that's not including you as individuals that support missionaries on your own. But as a budget as a church, we give that amount. So we are invested in missions here. We that's high on our list of something that we want to be involved in and connected to. And I want to encourage us through this message and through, throughout the many years of ministry that we don't grow stagnant in that, that we grow even more. I, I would like to see that budget number increase uh, financially, but also as a church, those that we support and, and sending out those. So that's the overarching purpose, really, that I want to convey in the message this morning. I desire to give you, the body of Christ, another glimpse into the glorious opportunities that God has for us in missions. You know, missions is not my idea. It's not the idea of the elder board. It's not the idea of a really clever author of a book. Well, actually, that's not true. It was an idea of one author. <clears throat> it's God's idea. Missions is God's idea. And, and I want to show you this morning from a very brief survey of the Bible. I'm going to look from Genesis to Revelation and I want you to see in this that missions matters because God is a missionary God. Therefore, his people, us as believers, should be missionary people. So I hope you understand as we look through that. The, 
The, the Word of God is, a, is, a, is an incredible book. And it's made up of 66 books. I don't know if you know this, you should. Written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by 40 different authors over a span of a 1,000 years. An amazing book that we have here. It's a book that assures overwhelming that, that God is on a mission to redeem people. It's a, it's a love story of a groom in pursuit of his bride. It's, it's a story of God's glory and his rightful ownership of worship. And I hope that you see that this morning. We're gonna quickly go through a number of passages and I wanna give you some references and read it so you can jot down notes. If you want my notes afterwards, I'll be glad to give my full manuscript and you can have it and study it and critique it if you so like. Um, but I want you to understand this from the full scope of, of what the Bible teaches that God is a missionary God. Second thing I want you to see is practically walking through how do we respond then from understanding that God has invented missions and he wants us to be involved in missions. How do we respond? We should do something in light of what we read in the scriptures. So I encourage you to buckle up. We're gonna get started here. We're gonna roll through, uh, through a number of passages. But before we do, please join me in prayer and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. Again, we thank you that we could come together as the body of Christ and to worship you. We thank you that we could sing songs together as brothers and sisters in Christ, lifting our voices to you. Father, I thank you for the ministry of, of those that serve us every week by leading us in worship and their desire to, to point not at themselves, but to you. I thank you, Father. Thank you for that opportunity, that chance we've had to worship this morning already through giving giving back to you what you've given to us, God. We thank you for that privilege. We thank you for the chance we have now to worship by the preaching of your word. I pray that you would uh, teach us this morning, that you would guide us and lead us, help us to understand that you are a, a missionary God. That is who you are. And help us to respond in, in light of what we see in, in your word this morning. May you be honored and glorified in our lives. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. The Bible is not a, a bunch of short stories that are disjointed, not connected. No, it's one book. It has an introduction, Genesis 1 through chapter 11. The, the plot, the main section of the Bible, that's Genesis 12 all the way through Jude. And in a conclusion, the book of Revelation. And, and that is God's story. So I want to begin at the at the beginning, Genesis 1 here. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. We're going to move quickly through, so I apologize ahead of time. Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's first command to his creation was be fruitful and multiply. I found this to be interesting a little bit as I was thinking about it this week. Why didn't God just populate the earth himself. I mean, he, he took dust and made a man. He could have just made everyone at that moment, right? Well, 
he left it up to humans. And partly because I think God has a plan and he knew that Adam would populate the land physically, but he also populate the land spiritually. The planet was meant to be covered, sea to shining sea with those that would worship him. That was God intended, God's intended plan. And Adam and Eve were to procreate those that would not only work the land and subdue it, as he says, but would come and worship God. But we don't get very far in Genesis until we get into chapter 3, and we realize that sin has entered, and the story takes a turn. Adam and Eve begin to question God, begin to question his goodness, and come to the conclusion that God cannot be trusted any longer. And they quickly turn on God and worship themselves. And in Genesis 3, we see the fall of man. Humanity is, is now doomed. Things get worse from that. You, know, you guys seen enough movies. You've seen how it begins, right? The storyline. Things are not looking good. By the time Genesis 7 comes, God is, is, is letting know his plans now to destroy the earth. He's going to destroy the earth and everyone on it except for Noah and his family. God floods the earth and starts over and, and listen now to the command that he gives Noah and his family after they step off the ark. Genesis 9, verse 1. And by the way, as you're turning there, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, I believe it's answers in Genesis, but it's Ken Ham's ministry is in Kentucky is building a life-size ark. I've been following online and seeing it. it just looks tremendous. So I think we need to do like a field trip when it's done. All of us will go back to Kentucky and see it just be tremendous to see, you know, a replica of what Noah did, just tremendous stuff. Genesis 9, chapter 1, or verse 1, excuse me. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same command that he gave to Adam. Don't just populate a city, but fill the earth. It's a command to multiply, and that's what happens. More and more people come. But again, another problem comes. We come to Genesis 11. Look at that, verse 1 in Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And then verse 4, and then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So you can picture what's going on here. Everyone looks around at each other, notices that they're very similar. In fact, they're so similar that they come to the conclusion that what we have here is a dream team. We all work together perfectly because we all think the same way. It's easy to communicate. They have the same language. We can understand one another. We, we, we are on the same page. Is that that case anywhere in your lives right now? You communicate the exact same way, perfectly. Can I tell you why? You got to follow with me, okay? Because we're going to get the answer here. They, they wanted to rule. They wanted to be like God or more than God. You can see it in verse 4. He says, they, this is what they say. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There isn't any humility in those words from these people. They desire to disobey God. They, they want to be their own God. They want to settle down and build for themselves a great life. This right here is where we get the horrendous idea of the American dream. You guys understand the American dream, right? Build a house, have a beautiful, multiple cars, kids, everything's safe. You know, we just have the dream of, of just us. Make a name for ourselves. 
And from the very beginning, God has been against the idea of building a kingdom for yourself. So if that's your dream, give it up, because God is against it. And he'll bring it down as he does here in chapter 11. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have, one, have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there, down there and confuse their language so that they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the, over the face of all the earth and left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. They wanted their own glory and not God's. I remember thinking about this passage and reading it while I was in Sweden. And I remember very specifically getting angry at these people. I sat in language class and was angry at them. Can I tell you why? Because I sat there as a grown man walking into a, a Swedish class of which they spoke no English, even though I knew she could. And just continued to speak Swedish. And day one was counting with numbers, like one. And I, you just felt completely foolish. And I thought, what better way to give you an experience to make you feel foolish this morning? So you're going to learn Swedish this morning, okay? At? Come on, you got to repeat after me, people. At? Not bad. Tvoa? No, no. Tvoa? See, listen to Steve. He's got it down. Tvoa. Tria? Yeah, he's, he's, he went to the north Sweden there. He's not right. Tria? Fira? Fira? See, yeah, you see, you're, you're struggling over there. Fem? Sex? Who? Yeah, good luck with that one. I, I sat there in class, and they would just continue to say it. And I'm like, who? Who? You know, and I couldn't get it. I feel like a complete moron. And all I could think of was Genesis 11. I was perfectly fine. Everything was perfectly fine. It seems as though on the outside, so God went and confused other languages because they wanted what they wanted. You know, it, a language study, I mean, pray for missionaries, especially when they go to a field and start, because um, I would hear about language study and think, okay, it's going to be hard, but, you know, I can do this. I've worked hard. I've had classes. I would go to class for three hours and come home and nap for two hours. My mind was completely shut down. I couldn't read outside of normal stuff because my mind was so wiped out from trying to learn a language. And Madeline would go to school and come back in a day and have twice the vocabulary as me. It's like a sponge. She would just pick it up. It was so difficult. And it would get worse, you know, as we learning a language because the, the, the thing you're supposed to do when you're learning a language is go practice. And it's like torture for the people you go meet. You know, I'd meet my neighbors and want to talk about the weather or talk about food or their dogs. And they, the Swedes would talk to me for just a few minutes and then switch to English because they were fluent in English. And I'd say, no, 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 I need to speak Swedish. And they'd say, I don't want to. Your Swedish is horrible. <laughs> and I'd go back and say, right here, Genesis 11. And this is where, you know, the languages started. This is where different cultures came in. This is an issue right now, right? I mean, we have, how many different cultures do we have in this room? Different ways of thinking. 
I mean, let me tell you, you sit down and you sit down with a young couple that wants to get married and they think they know everything and they sit down for marriage counseling and you realize, well, two different cultures right there, right? You think you got everything figured out and you realize two different life that you come to. It all stems from this. When that, when that came down, when judgment, the judgment came down and they all dispersed because their languages and cultures, it all comes down to this. All because... They wanted to, to be on their own. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Well, they, things move on from there. Genesis 11 ends the introduction here of the story of Scripture, and things change. People scatter. They leave. New cultures are established. Many people, many tribes, many languages. And through it all, and through we see all through Scripture, I want you to, to, to make sure you understand that man is God's method. He could have done it all himself, but he chooses man. So how will he do it now with all of these languages and all these cultures? Look at Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Hey, Abram, leave your country, leave, leave your people, leave those that you're most comfortable with, your family, your life, your dreams, your admissions, your plans, and go to a land, and by the way, I'll tell you later. I'll let you know what that is later, where and how to get there and how to live there. He doesn't tell him exactly what's going to happen. And I read that, and I get kind of frustrated because I like the plan. How many of you like the plan? You know, missionaries now don't have this, this issue. I remember before Sweden, we had multiple trips. I could do a lot of research. I had the internet. I, I could find out as much as I could about Sweden. But to think of Abram here, God just says, go. He says, go. Verse four, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. He leaves and obeys God. What a novel concept. Obeying God when he says, do this. Not questioning, just obeying. I mean, we don't have the full context. We don't necessarily know all the details. Maybe Abraham did have a conversation with God about the worthiness of leaving and following him. I, I guess it's possible, but it's not here. All we know is God tells Abraham to leave and Abraham obeys. And God chooses Abraham, not just him, but will bring a nation from him. The nation of Israel will be, were to be God's chosen people. And Israel was called to be a missionary nation. The people will be servants of God, his witnesses, his priests, his mediators for the nations. Let me read a passage of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 5 through 7. It says, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. One commentator writes about this. He says, Israel was to be a living example or a showcase of the righteous kingdom of God. The nations could learn through the faith and life of Israel and say, here are people who know and serve a wonderful God. His laws are fair and benefit everyone. They even protect the animals and preserve the soil. Best of all, these people have hope. For by their sacrifices they offer, their, 
their God forgives their sins and they expect a Messiah, Messiah someday. Israel was to be a missionary nation, to reach out to the other nations. Israel was not a hobby for God, but a chosen people to bless other nations. Genesis 28, verse 14, he says, he continues on, he says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The rest of the Old Testament is filled with God using Israel to make his name great among the nations. So from Genesis there, we flash forward 400 years and God hasn't forgotten his covenant with his people But presently in Exodus, they're under oppression. Pharaoh has them. In Exodus 6.1, we know about this. Exodus 6.1, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they live as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God doesn't do away with Israel, but he fulfills it. He's going to free Israel. And he does that. He brings them out. And then at Sinai, God gives the Ten Commandments to teach the people that they would know and understand who, who God is. And as you read throughout the Old Testament, the people try and they fail. They try and they fail. And still compelled to live in sin, but God does not dismiss them. They say, give us a king. And throughout there, and God gives them a king. And God sends prophet after prophet after prophet. And the same conclusion. And God pursues his people throughout the Old Testament. He's a a missionary God. His desire is to see the nations come and worship him. That's littered throughout the Old Testament. Listen as I read Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with Equity, let the, Lord, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will come and judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And you see his heartbeat through all of this. You, you saw multiple times as I read the nations, the world, it's, it's more than just them. It's through everyone. And he was using Israel, his people, to spread the gospel. James Boyce, writing about this psalm, he says, it is a joyful hymn to the God of Israel 
as the king and an invitation to the nations of the world to join Israel in praising him. It's also a prophecy of a future day when God will judge the entire world in righteousness. And God will come and judge. There will be a day where there will be no more missions. There will be a day where there's no more evangelism. Because God will come back and he will judge righteously. With throughout here, the Old Testament, God seem, seems to have enough. And he brings a, a blaring silence. 400 years of silence and they don't hear anything. No word from God. And then we come to the New Testament. And we quickly realize, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, that, that Jesus comes on a mission. We've seen as we walk through, through John's book, Jesus comes to show his people and us that he's different than any ordinary prophet. He's God in the flesh. He's come on a mission. He would be, perform amazing acts. We've looked at some of those. He's, he will turn water into wine, 150 gallons of water into wine to show them again his power. He takes a few pieces of bread and fish and multiplies it and feeds over 5,000 people, showing again that he is no ordinary man. But as we'll see as we get through the Gospel of John and as you've read, the Jews are not wild. They're not, they're not understanding who Jesus is. And all they wanted to do was kill him, to remove him to make a name for themselves. Instead of worshiping Jesus, they mock him, they whip him, they curse him, they beat him, and they nail him to a tree. A humiliating death. And Jesus comes to live to show us the mission of the Father, and he dies for our sins. He came in a mission and it was successful because three days later, Jesus rises again. He's back to life and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But that's not where the story ends. The mission is not done. We have book after book, starting with the book of Acts that shows us and teaches us that the mission is far from over. We have work to do. And Paul writes for us many letters instructing us on in how we should live and how we should work for God. And get this, folks, Jesus is coming back. Do you know that? Do you remember that? Jesus is coming back, perhaps today. Perhaps today. And when the time on earth is done, we're going to hear a trumpet sound, and he will come. He will return. Heaven will be opened, and the white horse with an author on it will be riding. And all the enemies of God will fear. His eyes will be like fire, and his purpose will be God's glory. Justice for all evil and life for all who love him. He will come to judge the quick and the dead, and every knee will bow before him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And death and Hades, it'll be thrown into the lake of fire, and Satan too. The church will rise. The church will surround the throne. And as Revelation 7 says, he looks out, John's writing this, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Such a great multitude, you couldn't number them all from every nation, from all tribes, and all peoples, and all languages. I, that's astounding to me, to think of what that will be like. And they stand before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits in the throne and to the Lamb. 
And we, as the church, will be singing, worthy is the Lamb, the Lamb who has been slain, blessing and honor, glory and power forever to his name. And for ages and ages and ages and ages, we will sing the praises of our God and King. This is the end. This is where it began and this is where it ends. It's all about worship. That is the theme you see throughout Scripture, folks. It all comes down to worship. I've mentioned a few books when I've done these messages, but one in particular about missions is called Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. The Supremacy of God in Missions, one of the best books on missions out there. And, and John Piper rightly says right at the beginning to make sure we all understand, he says missions exist because worship doesn't. That's the point of missions. That's the point of going out, that others would come and respond to the gospel so that they would worship God. That is what we see throughout the, the entire scriptures. So I've quickly gone through it, but what should our response be? What should our response be to, a, to seeing this and understand it? There's four things I want to end this morning on, four things I want to focus on. We should pray in faith, we should give in faith, we should go in faith, and we should die in faith. First, we should pray in faith. I've been praying this week that this message would fuel our prayers for missions and missionaries throughout the world not only for those that we support here at EBC, but for the countries that have the greatest need of hearing the gospel. You know, there are countries, a lot of them, over 2 billion yet, that have never heard the gospel. And if we interpret our Bibles correctly from Romans 1, and I think I have, they are damned. They have no hope at this point. They need to hear the gospel. There's more work still yet to be done. Matthew 24, 14 says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. I don't know where you land in your eschatology, that's okay, but I believe Jesus is coming back at any moment. But until he does, we have work to do. Until he does, we have work to do, and it starts with prayer. George Ladd, who referred to Matthew 24, 24, 14 as the single most important verse in the word of God, he says. This is what he writes about it. He says, God alone knows the definition of terms. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are, but I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ is not yet returned. Therefore, the task is not yet done. When it's done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining terms, our responsibility is to complete the task. So long as Christ has not returned, our work is undone. So let's get busy and complete our mission. He pulls no punches, right? The work's not done, so we have work to do. And it, it starts with prayer. If, you, if you've never picked up the book Operation World, this is a great book that just lays out all of the countries and the needs for all the countries. You can go to the website operationworld.org and have all the details that will fuel your prayers for missions. But let me ask very pointedly, church, are we praying for our kids, grandkids, that God would lead them to serve him in missions? And I say, I am praying for your kids that God would call them to be missionaries. I'm praying for my kids too that he would do the same. I think of the possibility of, of my kids and your kids understanding this, understanding the gospel, 
understanding the need for the gospel throughout the world and leaving to go. Makes me kind of want to cry as a father, but rejoice in what God could do. What a tremendous opportunity we have here right now that our own kids that we would raise to know and understand the need for the gospel to go forth. We need to be praying to that end. We need to be praying that. Praying in a way as parents and grandparents and those involved in our church to hold our kids loosely, meaning we love them, we care for them, we don't want them to leave necessarily, but we're willing and ready for them to go. So we need to pray in faith. Second, we need to give in faith. I read this week one estimate of Christians in North America, throughout churches in North America, that the average Christian gives 2.5% of their income to the local church. 2.5%. It's not enough. We need to give. God has given it to us. We need to give back. And of these churches, not our church, I've already given the stat, I'll, I'll give it to you again, but of these churches, 2% of those funds in those churches go to missions. So on average, most churches, what they take in, they only give 2% to missions. Praise the Lord that we're up to 20%. But can I be honest? I want to increase that even more. I want to increase that. And if these stats are true for, the North, for North American Christians, that means for every $100 they make, they give five cents to missions. It needs to increase. Churches in America need to increase giving so that we can send more people. I want our giving to increase at Edgewood Bible Church. Why do we need to give? Where does the money go? Maybe those are good questions you've, you've had about missions, understanding the whole aspect of missions. I, I'm not sure if you understand this, but I want to explain a little bit if you're unaware. When, when a missionary joins a mission board, they do not receive any income from that mission board. And in fact, as a missionary, we pay the mission board to help us. We give money. The missionary gives money to the mission board. They help us to function and to, and to go and serve. So missionaries are, are fully funded by churches and individuals. That's where the money comes in for income. There, it's a very unique situation with missions. I want to give you a, a scenario that paints the picture a little better, maybe understanding of how it's like for missionaries. This is from Pastor Robert Alderman, who, who leads uh, Shenandoah Baptist Church in Virginia. He says this, consider two young people who grew up in the same local church. Both are taught missions and both are aware of the significance of being a part of a mission-minded church. Both prosper in Christian nurture, growth, and service. Both attend the same highly approved Bible college and seminary. And during the time of their education, one senses the call to go to cross-cultural ministry and prepares that type of ministry. The other senses the call to prepare for hometown pastoral ministry and does so. They both graduate at the same time and call their church pastor for advice and counsel as to the next steps. Here's where the story changes. To the person preparing for hometown ministry, pastoral ministry, the pastor says, we're so glad that you've been called to this ministry. We're sending you a check to cover your moving expenses. We have an office for you. Your salary will be as it's discussed, plus you'll have the same benefits as the rest of the staff. Welcome to the church ministry. To the person preparing for cross-cultural ministry, the pastor says, we're so glad to hear that you've been called to this ministry. You need to select a mission board who will help you raise prayer and financial support. When you've selected a field, please contact us and we'll do our best to have you come and speak to our congregation about the work that God has called you. We wish you every success and we'll be praying for you. That is the norm with churches in America. It's a struggle. 
And the point of all of this and what I want to say is we need to understand as the church that missions is our responsibility. And how we come to the conclusion of how we support our missionaries is, is usually circled around the leadership and defining this is the best way. And so someone in our church that's sitting here says, I want, to, I want to serve the Lord in missions. The right response isn't to go on your own and to go do it and to go find it. You're part of this church. You're to come to us to seek involvement and, and, and direction and submission under the, the leadership so we can help you. We want to support you. We want to pray for you. We want to entrust you and maybe train you in the best way so you can serve God. That's not always the case in missions. But the financial responsibility for missionaries to go out, especially those that are from our church, is on us. This is our job. The responsibility of sending missionaries is not the mission board. The mission board came alongside churches to help them do the job, but it's our job. They will answer before God when, when they stand in judgment for how they do it, but we will answer as a church and how we supported and sent out missionaries. And I want to see us as a church grow in that. I think we have a lot, actually. At our church, we, we take missions very seriously. When Katie and I decided to go, our, I don't know if you guys know this, but the church supported us at 25%, which was tremendous. When I would talk to the missionaries, their home churches were much, much lower. So it was a huge blessing to us because it allowed us to jumpstart ministry and raise support. But I think we could do even more. You know, the extreme example is what I read here from Alderman. He says in their church, and they changed this about 20 years ago, that when a missionary is raised in their church, decides to go, they fully support them as a staff member. They send them out to another country as a missionary on staff. It took 15 years to change that, but tremendous, tremendous to see that. And there's obviously limitations for what they do in the situation there, and it's not the ideal, the perfect thing. But I appreciate the mindset of, of this pastor looking to say, how can we change the mindset to make sure we get missionaries to the field more quickly at a, at a better rate? And really, folks, we, we live in America, the richest country in the world. It's, it's, it should be easier for us to get missionaries to the field than it really is. So we should pray in faith, give in faith. The next one, we should go in faith. I mentioned this passage earlier. Let me read it. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Folks, when Jesus said go, he meant go. Real, you know, hard to understand sometimes, but he, he meant go. Like, go. That means go across the street, go across the cubicle, go across the hall, go. You're here, so go. It also means, in some ways, for some, to go across the world. But the point of what he's saying is, don't stay where you're at. Go. If you know someone that does that, needs the gospel, that's across the street, go to them. There's, and there's opportunities for us. We, we talk about this, and I'm trying to encourage myself in this, my family in this, and, and as a church, that we, we see this as opportunities, that we go and serve. But in the light of, of global missions, there's opportunities for us to go also. We have a short-term missions trip. We've talked about it. We're still looking in the plans, but Pastor Ryan mentioned to me, again, updating us. We have seven. Do you have any change from first service? There's still seven going? 
There's seven people going to Mexico this summer. There's a need yet. There are probably three or four more that could plug into that team. That's a great opportunity for, for eight days or so to go to Mexico to visit missionaries that we have linked arms with, the Glessners, who've been down there for a number of years. There's a chance for you just to step up and go. And we, I want people to do that. I want us to see this as, as an opportunity. When, I, when we share this as a church, we're saying, we've vetted this. This is a good opportunity. And your response is, if my schedule allows, I want to go. I want to be available. You know, it's a great opportunity. They're going to do a football camp. So even if you don't like football, they have teaching English. And Ryan said this. Anyone speak English here? I think you all do, right? Maybe not your first language, but you all do. There's opportunities to serve. But even more than that, you have an opportunity to go and support and encourage a missionary, but have opportunities to preach the gospel. Kids coming for that purpose. So we're giving you this opportunity, a fantastic opportunity. And, and guess what? If you don't go, I will not chastise you. I will not make you feel guilty for not going. But I will give you opportunities to even support, even if you can't go, because there's ways to pray. Once the team's set, we're going to get some more information out so how you can pray for this team. And I want to challenge you to pray for them on a daily basis, that God would use them and prepare them to go. There's chances for you to give. Maybe you can't go. Maybe you have other obligations, but you can pull back in some other areas of your life so that you can give and support and say, I want to send one kid on my own, or I want to, I want on my own, get a couple people and send someone. We want to get, we're going to get those numbers to you in the next few weeks so you know the total packages for every person and, and you can give so that they can go. So there's the short-term trips. There's kind of mid-term trips that I would look at. The longer than a week, more, more like a month. You know, like Marianne and Joanne who go down to Mexico every year. They go down for a period of time. There's an opportunity there. I was just talking to uh, the area director over Africa, the area director over Ryan and Stephanie, Ron Washer. I had coffee with him on Friday, and he was telling me about the needs in South Sudan. You know, Sudan separated South, that it's their own country. And he says that they're very open to the gospel. And I said, so how would this work? Could I get a team? He's like, yeah, a small, small team, five to six to go for a month to spend time with these villagers, these cattle herders, to spend time with them, get to know them and share the gospel. It, it's not a tourist trip. It's going into the, the jungle, the bush, but have an opportunity through a translator to share the hope, to share what we just walked through here, the gospel. And I said, so anyone can go? And he's like, yeah, I mean, it's open and they're receptive. And I think what a tremendous opportunity. I kind of want a month off. Elders, is that okay? I want to go, you know? I mean, what an opportunity this is. The experience another culture, the experience opportunity just to, to give of myself to someone that needs to hear the gospel. There's always those opportunities. And there's always opportunities for those that want to go full-time. I'm, I'm always looking for that. Looking to hear, you know, young or old, to say, yeah, I want to serve God full-time in missions. I'm, I'm ready to sell my house, sell my things, Move to the other side of the world so that I can preach the gospel. What a tremendous way to, to spend your retirement. It's a privilege to go. It's hard. Uh, you know, Katie and I will tell you, it's hard. You give up things that you don't want to give up. But the reward is so much greater. And if you're sitting here thinking, I have kids, and, I, and I'm not sure if I want to take my kids to those countries, folks, I got to tell you, staying in America doesn't seem like a much better option at this point. I love America, but we're going down the path here. And, and frankly, the, the response should be for all of us, and myself included, that God's in control of our lives, and he's in control of our kids' lives. And so for anyone here 
that wants a safe, untroubled, comfortable life, free of any danger, stay away from Jesus. It's not a welcoming message, is it? Probably shouldn't put that on the board out there in the road. The danger in our lives will always increase in proportion to the depth of our relationship to Jesus Christ. The more faithful you are to serve him and to preach his gospel, it will rise. But even in all this and going, you know, I want to be clear that in the New Testament, there are those that go and those that stay. Not everyone can go. I understand that. You know, you see the example of Timothy and Paul. Timothy came into the church and Timothy stayed as a pastor to train others, to teach the word of God and to send out others. But Paul, Paul is always going somewhere. He'd stay for a short period, but he'd go somewhere else. Two different types of people, two different types of ministries, both honored and glorified God. Not one was better than the other. And so I understand that here. There are some in our church that are called to go and there are a lot that are called to stay and that's okay. God is honored and glorified to that. But the question is, which one are you? Because you're either a sender or you're a goer. And, and both require sacrifice. So which one are you? There's no other choice. There's not a third option. We either send people to go and support them or we go. Which will you choose? So we talked about praying in faith, going in faith, giving in faith, and now the last one's dying in faith. If we have a high view of God's sovereignty, it will fuel a death-defying purpose to serve God in global missions. If we believe that God is sovereign in all things, we will be willing to die for the sake of people who need to hear the gospel. We will suffer in this life. You cannot escape this in this world. You will suffer. Jesus suffered to provide the gospel, and we will suffer as we preach the gospel. I read about a Romanian pastor this week who was interrogated and abused and, and beaten for proclaiming Christ. And what he said through all of it that got him through it all was his high view of God's sovereignty. This pastor recounted one occasion where he was being interrogated by six men. And he, this is what he said to his interrogators. He says, what is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. The interrogators looked puzzled. And Tison said, my God is teaching me a lesson through you. I do not know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will do to me only what God wants you to do. And you will not go one inch further because you are only an instrument in the hand of God. And Tyson remarks, to see those six pompous men as God's puppets. He tells another story. He says, during an early interrogation at Pelosi, I, had, I told an officer who was threatening to kill me. He said, sir, let me explain how I see the issue. Your supreme weapon is killing me. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood and everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I better listen to this again, to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So sir, my sermons will speak 10 times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. He sent me home. 
Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told me, we know that Mr. Tyson would love to be a martyr, but we're not so foolish to fulfill his wish. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered for how many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now I was willing to lose it, and I found it. I don't know about you, when I'm reading that, it cuts to the core of me. How often we we strive to just protect what we have and are unwilling to submit to a, a sovereign God. We think we have to have control over this. And God says, I've, I've got this. Trust me. Now, how's this applied to us this morning? You may choose to stay here, God calling you to stay in America and serve the Lord. God doesn't send everyone to another country, but don't be fooled for a minute that persecution will not come to you if you're preaching the gospel. Jesus had a few things to say about fear and death in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 10, 28 through 31 says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a sin and yet one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear you're more valuable than many sparrows. And Jesus is telling his disciples who would face certain persecution and suffering. All of them, except for John, would, would die a gruesome death for Jesus. And he says, don't be afraid of people. The worst that they can do is kill you. Wow, that's encouraging. Can you imagine the response? You know, we may say, you know, if I go to that place, if I, if I go do this, or if I say this, if I step out of this, they might hurt me. They might kill me. And Jesus says, that's all? We don't need to be afraid to go any in the world because the worst thing that could happen is that we might be killed. And this is to comfort us. And the only way that it comforts us as if we have already died in Jesus Christ. The only way this can encourage us is if we're so focused on an eternal God that temporal human beings strike no fear in us. Because as the, the words of Paul say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So clearly the only way death can be a reward is if dying is really gain. So what would we do? What do we do in light of this message this morning? I am praying that our church will be known not for our seating capacity, but for our sending capacity. That we will be known for that. I am not interested building an empire on the North Hill. It doesn't interest me. If that's the direction it wants to go, I need to go somewhere else. That's not where I'm at. That's not what my job. That's not what my desire is. 
My desire is that we learn and grow as a body of Christ and we send out healthy Christians to serve the Lord, whether that's in the Northwest or in other states or throughout the world. I am okay sending out our best people that we've trained here to go serve the Lord in other places throughout the world. I want our church to grow in its giving towards missionaries. I, I want to see that increase individually for you guys and as a church in our budget. You know, there's no reason why missionaries should take three to five years to raise financial, raise financial support. I, I contacted the Buzaks just to find out. They're back on a, on a break. They're $700 shy of being fully supported. There's no reason for that. We are the richest country in the world. We should be able to give so that they can support, be, be, be fully funded to serve the Lord. So I would encourage you to cut away from other things in life that don't really matter and give to them. And I want to encourage you again, remember, it's not your money. It's not my money. It's God's money. We are only money managers. It's his. So we need to manage it well. I want our church to be known as, as those that freely go to serve others throughout the world. That we pray for missions. We pray for missionaries. We pray for countries that need the gospel. I pray that we will be a church that just continues to grow, meaning we have people, we train them, and we, we plug them into ministry, whether here or throughout the world, and that continues that process until the Lord comes back. We have a job to do. I don't want us to get lax, but to keep working in that way. I pray that we be a, a church that preaches the gospel throughout the world. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning to, to look into your word ever so briefly and, and to see throughout from Genesis all the way to the end that you are a missionary God. And your work is not done. Father, help us, help me to not, to not sit back and just live the good life here and show no concern for all that's happening in the world. Father, I pray that you would remind us all on a daily basis, those that are dying in our world that have no access to the gospel, that we would give and we would pray and we would go. Father, help us not to be so comfortable here. It's so easy, God. Help us. I pray that you would raise up our kids, raise us up if needed to go into short-term missions, mid-term, or life. I pray that you would raise more people, that we would understand the need for missions and respond. And Father, if we haven't already, I pray that we will respond right where we're at. If we're unwilling to go across the street to our neighbor who needs to hear Christ, what makes us think we can go across the world? Help us to be faithful in that. Give us courage. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.